God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this evening. God, I thank you for everyone that's gathered here. I thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your word again. Lord, if you would be with me. And so, God, I ask that everyone here would be able to listen, be able to understand that the truth behind this text is what would come out of it, Father, and that we would be moved by what we see about you. And this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Jonah is out of the fish. God has rescued him from drowning, preserved his life for three days, three nights, and has deposited him, so to speak, back on land. From the beginning, God has been moving to get his resentful prophet to the city of Nineveh to proclaim his message. And rather than destroying Jonah for being disobedient, God has shown himself throughout the book as a God of mercy. God is on mission to rescue. He's on mission to forgive sinners. And chapter 3 finally takes us to the city of Nineveh. So let me begin with the first three verses of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So as chapter 3 opens, we might take the second chance that God gave to Jonah for granted. Um, Those don't always happen, though. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Ask uh, King Saul. We, We might even think that Jonah's heart has been renewed, and that's why Jonah finally goes. God just picks up where he left off, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're meant to see that, that God can respond to sin with great mercy. Jonah is probably pretty clear now on how serious God is about this message for Nineveh. He hasn't altered his plan one bit, not any detail of it. Jonah obeys. Again, at this point, what else could Jonah do? And it's pretty clear now that refusing to go is not going to work. And so a Hebrew man's deliverance is about to bring deliverance to Gentiles. God didn't find somebody else. His plan is still Jonah. This book is so beautiful and it's very deliberate portrayal of its characters, especially God. Especially God. He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't make deals. And He doesn't quit. He is relentless to save. And now finally the great city of Nineveh comes front and center. If you were to look at chapter 1 verse 3, And chapter 3, verse 3, they are huge contrasts, aren't they? 3-3 reads like 1-3 should have read. Jonah gets up and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The end of verse 3 reminds us that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In fact, the Hebrew here actually reads great city to God. He sees all nations. It says the city was three days' journey in breadth. That doesn't mean that um, it, it would have taken you three days to walk from one end of Nineveh to another, that would make the city of Nineveh bigger than the state of New York. That's not what the text is telling us. More than likely what's happening is that from where Jonah is, it's going to take him three days to get to Nineveh. Four times in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is called the great city. One, two, uh, three, two, and three, four, eleven, we'll find when we get there. Nineveh had always been destined for greatness. 
It's in the Bible a lot. In Genesis 10, 11, and 12, Nineveh was built by Nimrod. Remember the mighty hunter, it says, before the Lord. There is the first place. It's called the Great City. All the way back in the beginning, Nineveh was on the radar. Remember, it sat on the edge of what is present-day Mosul in Iraq, on the east side of the Tigris River, about 40 miles east of Syria. That's, that's where it was. Jonah's association with the city remains to this day very well known. There's an old, uh, actually a, an old Muslim mosque and cemetery in that site where Nineveh was called Nebi Yunus, which means the tomb of Jonah. It was an amazing city in Jonah's day. It was the last capital of the Assyrian Empire. Israel paid them tribute in her declining years. That's 2 Kings 15, 19 and 20, Isaiah 8, 4. So it covered some 1,850 acres. It contained very famous hanging gardens. There were water dams. There were parks. There was a 50-mile aqueduct to bring water into the city. You had administrative buildings, a very large library. So these were very high-minded, sadistic barbarians. They read a lot. Uh, King Sennacherib's Grand Palace was in Nineveh. It had two square miles of carved stone reliefs. It included the uh, famous scenes of Sennacherib's siege of Lachish, which is from 2 Kings 18, 14 through 17, 2 Chronicles 32, 9. So all this comes from excavations. It was a great city in size, influence, and splendor. The thing about it is, is that that greatness came at a bloody, brutal price. Assyrian kings were kind enough to chronicle their reigns for who would come after them. They boasted about their brutality. Very proud of it. For everybody to hear about, everybody to read about. King uh, Ashurnasir Paul II, who was the gold standard in Assyrian brutality, wrote a century before Jonah's time, and he described a military campaign. And these are his words. He says, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. He reported a battle where 3,000 were killed and many others taken prisoner. And he writes this, Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. After skinning alive some rebellious royal officials, again, skinning them alive, he reported in detail what he did with the human skins. Some he spread out on the pile of flayed corpses. Some he placed on stakes that were driven in among the pile while others were hung on stakes surrounding the pile. In other instances of flaying, so flaying was a habit for Ninevites, for Assyrians, he reports draping the human skins over the walls of the city. He says, thus have I constantly established my victory and strength over the land. And his successors carried on his legacy. That was just a century before Jonah. And beloved, these are the people to whom God sent Jonah, his missionary. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So there's the sermon. That's it. There's the message for Nineveh, just uh, presumably repeated over and over again. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's something missing in that sermon. Same thing that was missing in his prayer. 
That's another reason why you have to question Jonah here. Jonah is not telling the whole story. That's not the whole message. The text puts certain realities in front of us. We're going to find in chapter 4 that Jonah knew full well that repentance was a possibility. That the possibility of repentance was being held out to Nineveh. That was obvious in the fact that God was sending Jonah to warn them. If there's no possibility for mercy for a change, then there's no need for the warning. Why warn people? Why tell them? Just destroy them if there's no opportunity to repent. Jonah interpreted his message. Again, we'll find that out in chapter 4. And the fact that he was being sent as God offering a chance to Nineveh. Jonah knew that's what it was. And he leaves out in his sermon that they can repent. He just says, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. He neglects what Jeremiah will one day make explicit about God's ways with the prophets. In Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah, however, is very terse. He's very short in his message to them. So either the mercy that God had shown him hadn't really affected him at all, or its effects were very short-lived for Jonah. You know, he's just thinking. And again, when we get to chapter 4, we see all of this. You know that Jonah is just thinking when he says that 40 days. 40 more days and the earth will be rid of you people. My nation will never be burdened again by you. He doesn't want them to repent. He wants them to get punished. That's what he's banking on. That's why he's there. Send the fire. That's what Jonah's hoping. Send the fire. You did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. Do it again. Wipe these people off the face of the earth. They're horrible. Jonah knows that 40 means business. The Bible tells us this. 40 days of torrential rain for Noah. 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus. In in Psalm 95, speaking of the generation that spent 40 years in the wilderness, the Almighty God says, I loathed that generation. God said that for 40 years. 40 stripes in the law with the whip for a man who was convicted of a beating in Deuteronomy 25. 40 days means business, Nineveh, and you've only got 40 days left. That's all Jonah says. That's all he says. 40 days and you'll be overthrown. He doesn't expound on it. He doesn't add any hope. He's still hardened in his heart. He doesn't want them to know about the possibility of repentance, even though he had just been shown mercy. That's what we need to see. Look at 5 through 9. And, so every pastor in the history of pastors prays for this kind of success from a one-sentence sermon. Okay? And, the people of Nineveh believed God. Just right when you read that, do you see the contrast immediately in this book between Jonah and these wicked Ninevites? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached... So here's how it happened. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast 
Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So he, he knows what's wrong with them. He knows they're evil. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Again, the contrast between 3.5 now and 1.3 is amazing. Jonah got a very clear directive from the Lord and the man took a detour that lasted two chapters. Who knows how much actual time passed while Jonah was running. And Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, repents from the beggar on the street to the king in his palace at one sentence from a God they do not know. And it wasn't even detailed, the message they heard. It didn't say anything about repentance or the hope of reprieve. And it even threw the animals in with the people. These sadistic pagans, that's what they were, interpret Jonah's message to be one of impending destruction, and so they instantaneously repent. That must have been what they were thinking. This prophet's God is going to destroy us. He's going to kill us. We have to get ourselves right. And so Jonah, again, when you talk about the sovereignty of God at work for the salvation of people, this Jonah, a non-missional missionary who doesn't even want to be there, has a 100% success rate. That's an amazing thing. He fulfills God's mission. The city of Nineveh is a foil for the prophet Jonah for the sake of Israel in the immediate context of this book. That city is contrasted with God's prophet in the way they responded to God's word. The Ninevites called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. The king removed his robe and sat in ashes. Nobody could eat or drink. Again, not even the animals. Not even the animals. The king is taking no chances. He calls the entire city to call out mightily to God to turn from their evil ways and the violence that was in their hands. He knew exactly who they were. Again, there are no excuses. There are no attempts to rationalize or argue with the indictment. They all know their guilt. And the whole place repents at a sentence from a prophet sent by a God they did not know or worship. We cannot reiterate that reality enough if we want to get Jonah. Look at verse 9. Look at the brokenness of these people. Who knows? God may turn and relent from this disaster He means to bring upon us. Now look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said, that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. There's, there's evidence, actually, beloved, this is amazing. There's evidence from sources outside the Bible that actually corroborate the account of Jonah here. The events in the book took place, remember, uh, during the 8th century B.C. And based on what has been found at the site of ancient Nineveh, we know that prophecies were regularly brought to that great city. So, again, their response is amazing because they got prophecies in Nineveh all the time. That was their culture. Nineveh was filled with polytheists. And, and, and the king would hire 
There were actually men on the payroll that were employed full-time so that somebody could sift through all the prophecies that came to the city of Nineveh. That's how often this happened. Nineveh is filled with people that worship a whole pantheon of gods. That, that was their religion. They had many gods, not just one. And so they believed that the gods spoke to them. They believed the gods spoke about them. We also know from ancient Assyrian records that a complete solar eclipse occurred on June fifteenth, 763 B.C. Soon after the eclipse, there were floods and a famine in Assyria that were awful. If Jonah traveled to the city about the time we think he did, based on the historical information about when he ministered from 2 Kings 14, Jonah would have arrived in Nineveh in the months, maybe the years, just after that eclipse and that flood and that famine. Now, given the traumatic nature of their recent disasters, it would seem that the Ninevites may have been fully inclined at that time to believe that they were on the clock, that their city was about to be overthrown. That, beloved, is the all-powerful hand of a sovereign, loving God who is on time to bring about what He wants to accomplish. What mercy of this God, what timing. And interestingly, the city's great century and a half, or the city's greatest century and a half followed what would have been the period of this repentance. It's amazing. So wicked, so brutal, and so violent. And God relented from punishing them. He relented from absolutely destroying them. God did not relent from Sodom and Gomorrah. He relented from Nineveh. God would destroy a later generation of Ninevites in 611 B.C., but not this generation, beloved. Not the generation that will rise up at the judgment, remember, and condemn unbelieving Israelites for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Matthew 12, 41. This group, repenting in sackcloth and ashes, and this king, they'll be at the judgment. They'll be at the judgment. Asardan III might have been the king who repented. Right around that time, he was a wearied, a harassed king that probably would have jumped at any oracle from the gods. And so do, do we realize what God is saying to Jonah and to Israel here about himself? Keep in mind, Nineveh is doing this, and they aren't even sure that God is going to relent until day 40. For 40 days, they acted this way. And their repentance isn't perfect. Notice that. That, that, that. That's not there. It's weird, as a matter of fact. They throw in the animals, for goodness sakes. And they don't even offer it with tons of faith. They don't know. It's just the simple hope that if they repent, maybe if we repent, this God won't destroy us. So the only reason they're repenting is the fear of perishing. We doubt people's repentance as genuine if that's the only reason they ask for forgiveness, because they don't want to go to hell. We question them. We say, well, that's not really enough. It's not enough? It's not enough. It, of course it's enough. Like we're, we're not talking about what we think is good enough. We're talking about what God accepts. God relents. God relents. Just look at the contrast between Jonah and Nineveh. Think about this. Think about everything it took to get Jonah to 3-3. Think of everything we've read so far. And it took Nineveh a sentence. It's clear that they have hope. 
They have hope that God will be merciful to them. And it's just a hope in 3.9. That's all it is. Consider the implications then for Israel at that time. What was God saying to them? Mercy should blow us away. We should be in awe that God might even consider forgiving us. And look at all that He had done by this point for Israel. They had become complacent. She had, Israel had lost her wonder at God's mercy and His kindness and patience towards them. That shows in Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh. Jonah in the book of Jonah embodies Israel's presumption and distaste for others who need mercy, even though they themselves had turned away from God. What he and Israel should be is embodied here by a bunch of pagan, sadistic, idol-worshipping Gentiles. What an indictment for a man and a nation who flat refused to repent for sin, even in spite of all the knowledge they had. They knew this God. The Ninevites didn't. All the favor they had been shown. So unlike the Ninevite king in verse 9, Jonah did know. Jonah did have all the right knowledge, and instead of just hoping and banking on mercy like the Ninevites, Jonah was ungrateful and bitter and resentful. This was a culture who piled the skulls of peoples they conquered into pyramids. And again, they repented at a sentence because the one true God will forgive anybody who believes and repents. Anybody. He relents of the disaster he was going to do to them. Just like he has done for you and me. That should stop us in our tracks every time we hear about it. And, and I, I think we tend to take it for granted. You say, well, how do you... I would say the main way we know that we tend to take it for granted is how we look at sinners. We can't stand them. Can we just be honest? We can't stand them. We, we, we can't wait for, for certain cultures and groups out there to be wiped off the face of the earth. We can't wait till they get theirs. Beloved, we're falling into the same trap. We've got to see it. We've got to see it. It's amazing for one thing that a sovereign God who doesn't change, doesn't error, can't become more fully informed or emotionally manipulated so that he alters his will. That can't happen. That's Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Malachi 3, 6. God doesn't change. It's amazing that his sovereignty then willingly takes into account and encompasses repentance. So there will be times where God accommodates his word to our way of understanding. It's not like Jonah 3.10 means that God is actually changeable. It's actually a demonstration of his unfailing consistency and faithfulness. That's what 3.10 is. Words matter. He had said he would destroy the Nineveh that was wicked and unrepentant. He never said he would destroy the repentant Nineveh. The word for Nineveh's repentance in Jonah 3 is shub in Hebrew, which signifies turning from evil to good. The word for God's relenting in Jonah, some translations say repentance, is naham. It's a different word because he has no evil from which to turn. Right? God can't turn from evil. That word means he was moved with pity. That's what it means. 
He moves the wind and a storm and a fish and a plant and Jonah. What he does here is even more amazing. He moves the human heart to repentance even when it was dead set against him. A whole city. A whole city. And instead of destroying them in judgment, he forgives them and he relents. Don't miss the point of verse 10. Don't miss the point that significant change occurs for everybody in the book. The pagan sailors, the Ninevites, in the book, even the Lord is portrayed as having changed. Who isn't? Jonah. Jonah never changes. Every character changes except the prophet. The book is designed to shock us with the stubbornness and the obstinacy obstinacy of the human heart, even when it is filled with biblical truth like Jonah's was and rich with covenant privilege like Jonah's was. Translation, we need a Savior. And apparently the more you know and the more truth you have and the more truth you understand and the more light with which you see, the more likely it is that your heart will become hard if we don't mind the mercy of God, if we don't set our minds on Christ. God's actions here are for Jonah's heart. They're for Israel's. He's showing us something indescribable about himself here. Or, what's the right? Incomprehensible, maybe? Yes, he is sovereign. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. But even he will show mercy to sinners who repent. So there are times where, as we move through a text, that we shouldn't move forward until we address the elephant that a verse sometimes will put in the room. That's what verse 10 does. Let's look at that one more time. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. What? Really? You know what these people had done. And they said sorry, and that's it? That's it? Sentences like that should blow us away. He just forgave them. That's all. That's all. They say sorry. God relents. God has pity on Nineveh. Remember what they were. And He has pity. Beloved, have you ever asked, have we ever asked ourselves how God can just forgive sins? And remain just and righteous. Have you ever thought about that? Look at what Nineveh was guilty of. I mean, I, I, did, I read a few sentences. I literally didn't scratch the surface. Literally. And because they repent and hope that God won't destroy them, He lets them off the hook. The biggest problem for God... And I, again, I'm, I'm, we're working through this. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The biggest problem for God, if we ask the question, is this God really good and just and righteous? The biggest problem then is not how could a loving God send people to hell? That's not the biggest problem. Facing God, right? That He has to answer for. That's the guilty getting punished. That shouldn't be a problem for our minds at all. The problem for us, if that's the way we're going to argue, 
should be heaven, not hell. If God is just and right and good, and the guilty always get their due, how in the world can you explain Nineveh? How does that work? How can he just forgive anybody? I mean, surely the crimes Nineveh had committed required a little more than a heartfelt, I'm really sorry, please don't destroy us. Surely it requires more than that. If God is so righteous and so just, if He embodies righteousness, if He embodies justice, remember, if those things are the foundation of His throne, as the psalmist says all the time, how does the throne not crumble when He just forgives Ninevites? And we're all Ninevites. How, how, how does that work? Think about us, beloved. Think about our sinfulness, even as believers. How we just continue to struggle with sin. How we were before we were saved, even. How the world is now. It's just sin and sin and sin and sin. Storing up more wrath, more judgment. Unspeakable crimes are committed all the time. And in heaven stands this holy, sovereign, righteous God who has His arms open wide and will just wipe the slate completely clean and give you and I eternal life if we just ask Him to forgive us of what we've done. We don't treat our kids that way. And I'm not arguing for a way of parenting right here. I'm not. I I understand, but we don't do this. If if a kid really messes up and they come to us, look, I'm sorry. We we don't say, okay, all right, it's over. You, you made a mistake and you flooded the entire basement and we lost everything. You know what? It's okay. No. No, it's going to take a little bit more than I'm sorry, Junior. You know, it's a, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's what we do. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that in that situation that's wrong. But I, ho- I hope you understand the point here. How, how in the world... Does God's forgiveness not keep us up at night wondering about whether or not He's just and righteous? It doesn't seem right. It, it doesn't seem right. And I want to press this a little bit more. God Himself had said, we, we don't normally think about this, and that's all right. I, I, but when God does things like this, it creates a massive problem for Him because He said certain things that it looks like He's going back on. Think about Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Listen to these words. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. By no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, wait a second. Will by no means clear the guilty. What about Nineveh? That's literally what he just did. He cleared the guilty. There were no sacrifices. Nineveh didn't offer up any sacrifices according to the law. And beloved, God does this still every single day. Every time He 
redeems a sinner. He acquits the guilty. Every time. We sing about that. We rejoice because of that. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with redeemed Ninevites. The New Testament in Second Peter calls Lot righteous. Lot. Now, if you know Lot's whole story, there are men you could maybe call righteous, and then there are men that they would think you were drunk if you called righteous. That's Lot. What happened? How is it not a massive problem for God to just let this generation of Ninevites go? I mean, think about it in real time. How is it not a massive miscarriage of God's own divine justice, of his own word? I, I, I think maybe we've talked about this before. What about King David, for example? I mean, this isn't the only time this happens, this kind of thing. King David, Nathan comes to David after David had raped Bathsheba and killed Uriah. That's what happened. I get really tired of the whitewashing of the Old Testament people. Okay? David, we blame it all on Bathsheba. Well, she shouldn't have been up on the roof taking a bath. That's what they did. That was the culture. And for where she was in her life, of course that's what she would have done. David should not have been standing on a balcony at that time of day. He should have been out to war with his army. It was his fault. Don't, don't whitewash it. It was horrible what he did to that poor woman and her husband. Horrible. I'm not judging him. My goodness, I'm not looking down on him. I'm not standing above him. I'm just saying I, I don't think he would want us to think, like, don't blame that on Bathsheba. You, you just, you send for her? And you're like, yeah, this is happening. I'm the king. Like, that's awful. Awful. And then he gets her husband pinched. Horrible. Horrible. Nathan comes to him. You're the man. And he gets to keep right on being king. What if you were Uriah's dad? How would you feel about that? What if your children had been murdered by these Ninevites? And, and you're supposed to believe that this God is just and righteous and good? Have you ever thought about that? No, 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 that's not what, they get burned alive. That's what happens to these people. You don't let it go. You're just, you're righteous. The Bible is not hiding anything from us. What happened? The nations are supposed to believe that God is righteous and just and won't clear the guilty. How, beloved, how can God forgive? If you listen to lost people, this is one of the things that really bothers them because we have this innate sense of justice. It, it, you can't just say sorry and it's over. It, it's not fair. That's, that's what they'll say. They're, they're not always so blind to things. They see that. They say, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't seem right. I want them to pay. So how is it not wrong? How, how can sin not demand more? I thought God was holy. How do people get off scot-free? I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, and, and, and there's all this red just sitting in the ledger of history. And then, God sent His Son. Listen to this. In light of all that, listen to Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. The sins of murderous kings and brutal pagan Ninevites and stubborn prophets. He just passed over it most of the time, so to speak. Just passed over it. It, putting Jesus forward as a propitiation, was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God let Nineveh go scot-free? He didn't. How can He let us go scot-free by just believing and repenting? How does that make it right? How can it be that easy? Beloved, it wasn't. It wasn't. Every ounce of divine wrath and punishment and judgment, every drop, every flame that the Ninevites deserved, that David deserved, was poured out on Jesus Christ, who was put forward as the payment for their sins and ours. Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath that Nineveh deserved, just like He's absorbed the wrath that you and I deserve. Beloved, in that moment on the cross, Jesus became Nineveh. Right? That's 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus became sin. Jesus became me. He became you. God knew very well what His justice would charge for His forgiveness. He knew it all through history. He knew it from the minute He didn't kill Adam and Eve right out of the gate. He knew it from before the foundation of the world. Whether or not God was actually just was kind of up for debate in the world until the moment His own Son shed His blood as payment for sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So central. Jesus is so crucial. He vindicates the merciful actions of His Father passing over former sins all through history. We, I, I, look, I'm with you. I, I know what it's like to watch miscarriages of justice happen all the time. And it's so frustrating. It's so angering. Beloved, if Jesus is real, there will never be injustice forever. Every account, every account will be taken care of either by the sinners suffering the just punishment for what they deserve, for what they've done for eternity, or by what they deserved having been taken out on Jesus for eternity. But there will be no injustice when all is said and done. None because of the cross. Again, God is reconciling everything at the cross. All those miscarriages of justice are settled at the cross. One place, one man, one life. Men of his sins didn't go unpunished, beloved. They were all thrown on Jesus. They're all thrown on Jesus. And God says, I accept that. 
I accept that. The wrath we deserve for our sins doesn't just get ignored, beloved. That's not the way it works. That's what Jesus took on himself by becoming a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us. All that blood, all that spit, all the beatings, the mocking, the thorns, the nails, the hanging on a tree, that was because God does take sin more seriously than we can possibly imagine. Because only that, only the death of His Son was enough to satisfy His wrath and meet His justice. That's what Jesus did. At the cross, He's going back and forward all through history, past, present, and future, and sweeping up all the wrath that should be poured out for every single sin of every single person He died for, throwing it on Himself and having God pour out His wrath on us for it. Just There's a great video, I wish I had it, but there's this image where um, a sinner is portrayed as bowing before the cross, uh, and then this image that Jesus, the figure, is still on the cross, but there's a, a like a, a rocket ball, for lack of a better word, of, of fire and brimstone, and instead of hitting the sinner, it's just plunging into the back of Jesus and exploding at the cross. I wish I had it, but that's... That's what we're talking about here. That's how He bought our salvation. God forgives sins and He remains just because Jesus Christ is a fully sufficient Savior. Jesus answers all the questions. Jesus' death makes God's justifying of people purely by grace through faith alone totally righteous. That's how much worth the blood of Jesus has before the Father. God's wrath and His justice are perfectly satisfied by Him. So, beloved, grace should be the things that the, the, the thing that shakes us, not punishment. Grace. Heaven should shake us, not hell. Not hell. In other words, beloved, we should have the humility and the good sense to just be blown off our feet by the fact that God would forgive me. It just we should just stay right there. And instead, we're, we're, we're just. We're out here saying things like, well, we love the sinner but hate the sin. Worry about your own sin. Like, <laughs> just, well, we aren't the world's sheriffs. Like, well, that's not the commission. We're all walking around arguing about whether or not God is good because of this thing or that thing. We're all on each other's backs all the time. I mean, I know I'm speaking with hyperbole. I, I but we just we, we hold grudges. We do. We withhold forgiveness from one another. When our entrance into heaven, even while we're withholding forgiveness from one another, is secure, because of Christ, our entrance into heaven was paid for by the blood of God's innocent Son. Just it just begs the question: How are we not merciful to other people? How is there not more patience, more love, more compassion, more mercy, more kindness? book of Jonah is telling us something. Don't be like Jonah. Be like the Ninevites. Probably won't hear that sentence in a Sunday school class, but it's better. There's no place on earth for a resentful heart like Jonah's in light of God's merciful, incalculable forgiveness. I'm not getting quiet here for dramatic effect. I'm getting quiet because Sometimes when you preach, that the sermon just bounces off the pulpit and right back up into your own face because you don't do what you're saying. 
We need a Savior. God's mercy flows to us through His Son's work, not ours. Through His Son's effort, not ours. We have His Son's righteousness, not ours. Rest, beloved. Rest, please, in the arms of your Savior. It is finished, and only He could offer it. Only He could satisfy God's justice against us. And He's done it. He's done it. It's finished. That's the fuel of mission. Not work, not willpower, not commitments. Grace is the fuel. Pure grace. I go show mercy because God has poured it out on me. The Christian life flows out of the fountain of God's saving mercy. His forgiveness of us is meant to be the thing that shapes us for this mission He's called us to. For the lives He's called us to. That sends us out into the street and into the world. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 is one of the most beautiful, comforting things in the Bible. You, you, you read that, you want to look at it and say, that's on the table? That, that's, that can happen? Yes, that can happen. The Lord Jesus precedes me in heaven. It is His blood that washes me clean. It is His righteousness that makes me just and acceptable to God. And He is my hope. He is my life. I lack nothing before the throne of God. Nothing. Even though my life can sometimes be a mess of my own making, even though my sinfulness and pride and selfishness and fear cloud my eyes, my eyes don't determine my destiny. My feelings don't determine what is true about me. Neither do yours. It is Christ alone. My Savior, my Rock, my Redeemer. I am His because of His grace. I I didn't behave my way in, and I can't behave my way out. The great shepherd holds me in his hands. That's the truth. Everything I needed, he's provided. Everything we're not, he is. And this is our only hope, beloved. That's all there is. That's all there is. Nobody's going to work their way into being kind of deserving. If God does not decide to relent and reach down in love and mercy and forgive me, I have nothing. But because He has, we have everything. Don't turn away from Jesus. He's enough. He's enough. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown. And love beyond degree. That's, we sing songs like that. Jonah 3.9 is not perfect faith. It isn't mature faith, but it grasps in its context something massively important about God. It expresses the seeds of this hope that He is a God who just might have mercy on us. They threw themselves onto His character. Isn't that amazing? They didn't know Him. They just threw themselves on His character. Maybe He'll be merciful. That's the right attitude. (laughs) Not presumption, which is what is embodied by Jonah. Israel had been shown mercy in a time when God technically hasn't even paid the price for sins yet, apart from their ritual sacrifices that we find out didn't take away sin anyway. They were putting it all in in an account. Israel should have been beyond thankful, more than willing to see that grace extended to others. Like, we didn't deserve it. They're getting it. Let's... Yeah, it's par for the course. That's the way grace works. You just get it. 
That's not how they felt. This is ours. We deserve it. You don't. (laughs) Yet, as an unbelieving picture of the people of God, which I think is what they were, as a covenant community without the Holy Spirit, they could not embody properly thankful hearts. Beloved, the church can. That's Colossians 3 this morning. We are the covenant community that can embody God's mercy and kindness to the world. That's what we're meant to do. We, the church, is the living antithesis of Jonah and his resentful heart. The message really is so simple, and we're so burdened down with so many other concerns. Don't overcomplicate the gospel. It's free, it's wide, it's great, and it fully encompasses even the worst of us. We're just, we're bankrupt before God, beloved. We're bankrupt. But God alone is more than sufficient. One book says, the very fact that God sent Jonah to the most wicked place on earth reveals that God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. The God who, Paul says, saves the worst of sinners, saved the worst of cities, all because of Jesus. Because of our Savior, the one we proclaim. He will bring peace. He will put an end to this rebellion. He will set everything straight. He will clean everything up. He will bring restoration to our lives and to the world. And His merciful forgiveness is the key to our lives and the key to our mission. Our whole identity before God is all wrapped up in merciful forgiveness that comes from above. We should be defined by mercy. We should be the most merciful people in the world. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to let each other down. It doesn't mean there can't be mercy. Not in a place where the reason the whole place exists is because God decided to be merciful to us when we didn't deserve it. When we had earned just the opposite. He didn't pay us according to the work we had done. He pays us according to the work that Jesus has done. That should shape everything. It should shape everything from how I am with my wife and my children to how we are with one another in the church to how we are towards each other at our jobs. It's just meant to shape everything. Let's be defined by mercy. Extend it to one another, to Moundsville, to the Ohio Valley, to the world. It's worth it. It's worth it. I'm going to close us in prayer. I'll be down front after this if you want to pray. I'm going to sing one last song here. I know I went a little longer tonight than usual for a Sunday night, but we won't take too much more time. I'll be here in the front if you need to come and pray, if you need to come and believe on Jesus for the first time, or if you need to come and work through some things together, I'll be here. Others can come and pray with you too. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for giving us this time together again. Lord, I love to walk through the truth of your word just Father, everything you've written is so beautiful and so deliberate and precise and perfect. And we just, we give you glory, Father. And I pray that tonight in our hearts you would move us, that, Father, we wouldn't leave here feeling guilty about what we've done or what we don't do. Father, that we leave here with our minds fixed on Christ in spite of those things. It doesn't mean we're taking it for granted. It means we're seeing it in the light of the gospel. Let none of us hope in finding peace and being better people. 
Let us find hope in Christ alone. This I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.